Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 53, the book of Matthew, chapter 15. Today we start Matthew chapter 15. And the first 20 verses of Matthew chapter 15 <clears throat> represent perhaps one of the most controversial segments of any gospel account. There is a parallel account of this same incident in Mark 7, and we're going to look at it as well because it adds some needed information. Before we do that, however, we need to recall that Matthew's is easily the most Jewish of any of the Gospels. He assumes a Jewish reader audience, and some of the earliest of the early church fathers claim that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew, only later was it translated into Greek. Now the way Matthew presents his work, and some of the Jewish idioms that are clearly embedded, most of which are obscured by their translation into Greek and then from Greek to English, as well as the way he puts matters that that seems to require a certain level of inherent knowledge by his readers of the Hebrew Scriptures, Jewish law, Jewish customs, locations of places in the Holy Land, other things that Jews would know as common knowledge but Gentiles wouldn't, make it highly probable that it was first written in Hebrew. <clears throat> now Mark, on the other hand, included some explanations of things that would be completely superfluous to Jews. But it was needed to help provide some background for Gentiles. It implies that he expected his audience to be mostly Gentiles who were Romans. Now there's one other factor we must consider. The earliest known complete manuscripts of the Gospels that we have are from about 350 A.D. It's fairly conclusive that all the Gospel accounts had been written from the middle of the first century towards the end of it, somewhere in there. Therefore, the earliest New Testament texts that we have are about 250 years after the originals were written. They had been copied, recopied countless times by 350 AD. So we must never think that what we possess are the original New Testament documents just because they're in Greek. What we have, except for Matthew, is copies in the original language they were probably written, but that's all. 
Okay? This also means that it is not proven that what we have is word for word the way the various authors first penned the many New Testament books. This is not to say at all that there's a verifiable difference since we don't have the originals to compare, so we cannot say with certainty whether or not there are some differences. But it is very nearly inevitable that some small amount of editing, editorializing, even some error had to occur over two and one-half centuries of hand copying that was done by scores of different people. And Mark 7 has strong evidence of some editorializing in a couple of key passages. Even more, and this is perhaps the most crucial point, the copying occurred within the Gentile Christian Church. See, the Jews held no interest during this time period in Jesus or Paul or Christianity. Even some of the most conservative Bible scholars admit there is strong evidence of later Christian influence that was woven back into some of the New Testament accounts. Now, don't think that I'm suggesting that the New Testament books that we have today are flawed. I'm saying that when something, a verse, a comment within a book simply doesn't fit, or it seems to go against earlier teachings, we need to hold them suspect as a later Christian editor may have had a hand in it. At other times, it is very likely a legitimate issue of Gentile Christians' misunderstanding. Misunderstanding Jewish concepts, Jewish words, Jewish expressions, and so choosing the wrong words to translate. Because by the time of 350 AD, the New Testament documents the church had and were copying already had become the province of a Gentiles-only institution that was openly anti-Semitic in their doctrines. So before we read Matthew chapter 15, I also want to make one more explanation since I get regular emails on this subject. It concerns my use of the term doctrines. The term doctrines is from its dictionary definition, generally speaking, a neutral term. It's neither negative nor positive. A Judeo-Christian doctrine is said to be a faith principle or a rule based on a biblical interpretation. Early in the Holy Scriptures, the term doc doctrines was used to describe faith principles sent down from God through His prophets and through Moses. However, today, within the Christian church, the term doctrines simply means what committees of men 
that belong to specific denominations have created as their church rules and principles. When I use the term doctrines, it nearly always means man-made Christian rules and statements. This doesn't mean all doctrines are wrong. I'm not saying that. Rather, the issue is that over the centuries, the church has significantly veered away from direct biblical instruction and instead has embraced Christian customs and rules derived by various groups of men and imposed upon them, uh, imposed them rather, upon the members of the few thousand different Christian denominations. So when I use the word doctrines, I do mean it as something contrived by humans, and so it is a mostly negative term. Well, let's read Matthew chapter 15. We're going to read it all. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. A lot going on here. <clears throat> then some of the Parshim, that's Pharisees, and the Torah teachers, scribes from Jerusalem, came to Yeshua and asked him, Why is it that your Talmudim, your disciples, break the tradition of the elders? They don't do Yat Yadayim this ritual hand-washing before they eat. And he answered, Indeed, why do you break the command of God by your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his mother or father must be put to death. But you say, If anyone says to his father or mother, I have promised to give to God what I might have used to help you, then he is rid of his duty to honor his mother or father. Thus, by your tradition, you make null and void the word of God. You hypocrites! Yeshau, Isaiah, he was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is useless because they teach man-made rules, as if they were doctrines. Then he called a crowd. He called the crowd to him, and he said, Listen, understand this. What makes a person unclean is not what goes into his mouth, rather, what comes out of his mouth. That is what makes him unclean. The Talmudim came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? And he replied, Every plant that my Father in heaven has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Let them be. They're blind guides. When a blind guy, man guides another blind man, both will fall in the pit. Kepha, Peter, said to him, Explain the parable to us. So he said, Don't you understand even now? Don't you see that anything that enters the mouth goes into the stomach and passes out into the latrine? But what comes out of your mouth is actually coming from your heart. That's what makes a person unclean. For out of the heart 
come forth wicked thoughts, murder, adultery, other kinds of sexual immorality, theft, lies, lies, slanders. These are what really make a person unclean, but eating without doing nithliat yadim does not make a person unclean. Yeshua left that place and he went off to the region of Sor and Sidon. A woman from Canaan who was living there came to him pleading, Sir, have pity on me, son of David. My daughter is cruelly held under the power of demons. But Yeshua didn't say a word to her. Then his Talmudim came to him and urged him, Oh, send her away because she's following us and she keeps pestering us with her crying. And he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she fell at his feet and said, Sir, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's fruit, food and toss it to their pet dogs. And she said, That is true, sir. But even the dogs eat the leftovers that fall from their master's table. Then Yeshua answered her, Lady, you are a person of great trust. Let your desire be granted. And her daughter was healed at that very moment. Yeshua left there. He went along the shore of Lake Gennaret. He climbed a hill. He sat down. Large crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. They laid them at his feet and he healed them. People were amazed as they saw mute people speaking, crippled people cured, lame people walking, blind people seeing, and they said, A bercha, a blessing to the God of Israel. Yeshua called his Talmudim to him and said, I feel sorry for these people because they have been with me three days. Now they have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry because they might collapse on the way home. And the Talmudim said to him, Well, where will we find enough loaves of bread in this remote place to satisfy so big of a crowd? And Yeshua asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few fish. And after telling the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, made a bercha, broke the loaves, gave them to the Talmudim who gave them to the people. Everyone ate his fill. They took seven large baskets full of the leftover pieces. Those eating numbered 4,000 men plus women and children. After seeing, sending the crowd away, he got in the boat and went off to the region of Magadan. <clears throat> this chapter opens with a confrontation between Yeshua and some Pharisees and scribes hailing from Jerusalem. Now, verse, as verse 12 tells us, it must have been a pretty testy exchange that had onlookers on edge. Once again, we, we don't see a meek and mild Christ backing away from a skirmish with self-important Jewish religious leaders. Our Messiah has a backbone. In fact, sometimes he seeks out confrontation. However, here, however, it was they who sought him out. Now, the first thing to visualize is that these are synagogue leaders that are coming to do theological battle 
with Yeshua. The second is they're coming from Jerusalem, the piety center of the Holy Land. This is a pertinent piece of information that's included because the religious leaders who lived in Jerusalem were the most rigid, the most demanding, confrontational people. Jerusalem was, for centuries, the religious center of the world for Hebrews. And so the most Orthodox lived there and they studied there at the several religious academies. Now, besides it being the place from which the many Hebrew kings lived and ruled, the temple and the priesthood were also located there, so there was this extra high sense of spiritualism for those who chose to live there, especially if they were religious leaders and teachers. Now, notice it was not the priests or the Levites who regularly came to do battle with Yeshua nor was it so this time. The temple system seems to have taken little notice of him so far. It was the synagogue system. It was the scribes and the Pharisees that ran it who saw a real and growing threat to their authority that was brewing. So in the end, this is what these confrontations were all about. Now, before we go any further, I want to read a few verses from Mark chapter 7. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're going to read the first 15 verses. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. <clears throat> Mark chapter 7. The Parashim and some of the Torah teachers who had come from Jerusalem gathered together with Yeshua and saw that some of his Talmudim ate with ritually unclean hands, that is, without doing Nathiat Yarim. For the Pharisees, and indeed all the Judeans, holding fast to the tradition of the elders, do not eat unless they have given their hands a ceremonial washing. Also, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have rinsed their hands up to the wrist and they adhere to many other traditions such as washing cups and pots and bronze vessels. Now the Parashim and the Torah teachers asked him, Why don't your disciples live in accordance with the tradition of the elders but instead eat with ritually unclean hands? And Yeshua answered them, Yeshua, yeah, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about, your, about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is useless because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. You depart from God's command and hold on to human tradition. Indeed, he said to them, you've made a fine art of departing from God's command in order to keep your tradition. For Moshe said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if someone says to his father or mother, I've promised as a korban, that is a gift to God, what I might have used to help you, 
then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, with your tradition, which you handed down, which was handed down to you, you nullify the word of God and you do other things like this. Then Yeshua called the people to him again and said, Listen to me, all of you, understand this. There is nothing outside a per- person which, by going into him, can make him unclean. Rather, it is the things that come out of a person which makes him which makes a person unclean. Okay. So the issue for these synagogue leaders is this. They had been observing Yeshua and His disciples for some time because they were aware of this growing competition from a mere carpenter from the Galilee. And they were put off that His disciples didn't wash their hands before eating, something that these Jerusalem synagogue leaders held as sacrosanct. This washing that they speak of had little to do with hygiene. It was a ritual ceremonial matter. The ritual was called Netlat Yadim. And Matthew 15.2 has these religious leaders saying that the disciples, and no doubt Yeshua Himself, are breaking the rules of what? The traditions of the elders. So it's critical, oh, it's so critical that we understand something fundamental to this entire scene. This had nothing to do with Holy Scripture. Nothing. It had nothing to do with the Torah. Nothing to do with the Law of Moses. This was strictly about the traditions of the elders. Traditions of the elders is also known as Jewish Law, Oral Law, Oral Torah, and Halakha. That is, this is not about Biblical laws and instructions as given by God and found in the written Torah. These are not things told to Moses by God and recorded in what we now call the Old Testament. Rather, these are man-made commandments and laws created by the Jewish religious authorities who meant to rule over the Jewish religious institutions and the Jews who were connected to them. Or better yet, this is all about rules for the synagogue. The temple authorities, beginning with the high priest, were not in the business of making laws and traditions. In fact, one of the reasons that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were usually at odds with one another is that the Sadducees did not accept these traditions and Jewish laws as legitimate. While the priesthood leadership itself may have been corrupt and illegitimate, nonetheless the Sadducees, that was the political religious party of the priesthood, they claimed to accept only the authority of the written Biblical Torah. That they didn't practice what they preached, that's a whole other matter. The reason I began today's discussion by explaining what I mean 
when I say doctrines and the negative sense in which I usually use this term, it's because it corresponds precisely to the traditions of the elders. That is, while Christians point to their doctrines as their church rules, Jews point to their traditions as their synagogue rules. In both cases, these are human contrived rules and regulations that are invariably taught as though they came from God's mouth. And as we see when we read this passage from Matthew 15, Matthew and Yeshua absolutely use the term traditions of the elders as a negative. So to repeat, the argument that ensues between Christ and the Pharisees it had nothing to do with Holy Scripture. There's nothing for us to learn about the Law of Moses or, or any of the Holy Scriptures here because that just isn't the subject. Okay. Something else that must be noticed, the specific point of debate is ritual handwashing. Thus the debate is framed for us as if it were in brackets. The opening bracket is verse 2, when the complaint of the Pharisees and the scribes is made. Then we have the body of the argument presented, and finally the closing bracket is verse 20, when Jesus concludes His teaching against this ritual handwashing demand. That is, the entire subject being addressed is placed in a kind of self-standing bubble. The subject is ritual handwashing, nothing else. There is nothing here about kosher food. What is permitted to eat? What is not? Even though Christianity centers its doctrine on the abolition of biblically kosher eating on this paragraph. The conservative Bible scholar W.D. Davies, in his 2,000-page commentary on Matthew, says this, Against Meyer and others, we do not find in Matthew 15 an abolition of the Old Testament purity laws. Not only would such an interpretation run afoul of other Matthean texts, in other words, other, other things Matthew wrote, but the decisive statement in Mark 7.19 that all food are clean has been omitted. The evangelist, that's Matthew's, concern is not with the Old Testament, but with the Pharisees and their paradosis. Paradosis, that just means a historical tradition. So one doesn't have to be a modern-day messianic or Hebrew roots adherent to readily see that this section of Matthew, it has nothing to do with kosher eating has nothing to do with the Biblical Torah. It has only to do with man-made rules and regulations. But <laughs> when an 1800-year-old Christian church doctrine is that Christians don't have to abide by anything in the Old Testament, then all New Testament interpretation necessarily comes to the conclusion that, among other things, all purity laws are gone as well as all of God's food laws regardless of what the Bible might say about it. 
Matthew 17 or 5, 17 through 20. Do not think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passed away, not so much as a uterus stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So, whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teach others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because I tell you, here's the punchline, I tell you that unless your righteousness is far greater than that of those Torah teachers and Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice in this profound statement from Matthew 5, not just the familiar denial by Christ that he came to abolish the Torah and the prophets, but rather those final few words that just blistered the scribes and the Pharisees when he says, unless a Jew's righteousness is greater than that of the synagogue religious leadership, no entry into the kingdom of heaven is possible. So now, to begin Matthew chapter 15, we see these scribes and Pharisees have counted strict adherence to the traditions of the elders, to man-made Jewish laws, as their righteousness. The circle's closed. What Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5.20 is exactly the scene that's unfolding in the first 20 verses of Matthew chapter 15. That is, Jews and all humanity are going to be judged by God, not by the traditions of Judaism, nor of Christianity, but by God's words, His Holy Scripture. I'm going to be talking more about the Christian Church soon. But for now I want to speak directly to Jews and some Gentiles who identify themselves as Messianic believers in Yeshua of Nazareth. I have noticed a troubling trend within some branches of Messianic synagogues of wanting to do Talmud study as much or more than Scripture study. I have noticed an increase in the adoption of rigid rules and reg regulations of Orthodox Judaism about many details of life that has the potential to detract from learning God's Word and following Yeshua's ways. Maintaining one's Jewishness is admirable, it's good, it ought to be done. But be careful. Too much focus on traditions can lead, in some cases, to giving up God's words for man's words, which does great damage to our souls and our relationship with the Lord. You know, it's one thing to look to ancient Jewish literature to learn about the mindset, the history, the ways of early Judaism to help us better understand the biblical times. 
there are even some solid biblical insights buried in those volumes that are quite profound and profitable for all followers of Jesus, Jew or Gentile. But we need to be on guard not to be led into thinking that the doing of these traditions represents the righteousness that God requires of us. I'm not concerned about things like the detailed ways that biblical holidays and feasts are celebrated according to Judaism, because most, mostly those are perfectly fine. Their cultural customs, their preferences. In fact, there's much there to consider, perhaps to adopt, in order to flush away centuries of paganism that has infiltrated Christian traditions. <clears throat> Rather, I'm concerned about what Yeshua says I'm supposed to be concerned about man made doctrines taken as having the equivalent authority as God's Word. Now, quite interestingly, Yeshua wasn't the only one to question, contradict, and even shun the teachings of man-made doctrines in His Jewish culture. The essence of the Dead Sea Scrolls had their axe to grind. In the document 1QH4, verses 14 and 15, we read, Teachers of lies and seers of falsehoods have schemed against me in a devilish scheme <clears throat> to exchange the law engraved on my heart by thee for the smooth things which they speak to thy people. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the teachers of the smooth things are said to be the Pharisees. So this is, of course, speaking about traditions of the elders as against the law engraved on my heart, the law of Moses. Now in Matthew 15, 3, Yeshua does something typical for him. He answers a question with a question. After the Pharisees' accusation of His disciples not obeying the tradition of the elders by doing a ritual hand washing before eating, Yeshua asks them why they break God's commands by adhering so devotedly to their traditions. The meaning's plain. Their ritual hand washing breaks God's commandments. Nowhere in the law of Moses does God require His people, at least the non-priests, to wash their hands before eating, ceremonially or otherwise. What is the reason for this tradition about hand washing? It is meant to wash off any ritual uncleanness so that it won't be transferred to their food. Where would this ritual uncleanness have occurred? Well, Mark 7 4 gives us one such example, and it reveals the real motivation behind the invention of this hand washing ritual the proximity of Jews to Gentiles in the marketplace. See, the Jews had for a few centuries by Yeshua's day considered Gentiles as inherently unclean people. The principle had become 
thoroughly embedded in the Jewish religion. And since the Jews had been under foreign kings for centuries, and lately that king was the emperor of Rome, then Gentiles overran the Holy Land. Jerusalem was full of Gentiles. So even the temple grounds had curious Gentile onlookers at the religious ceremonies. So were all the marketplaces everywhere in the Holy Land full of Gentiles who now lived there, and so they chopped there. For Jews, this meant that everything the Gentiles touched, well, that was made unclean. Again, this is not a biblical principle. It was a tradition that was handed down from the Jewish elders. But as happens, whether in Judaism or in Christianity, the line eventually blurs between tradition and Scripture, and invariably, tradition wins out. Because whether it is to please or to control the congregation, human rules and doctrines are more naturally accepted than God's rules and laws. <clears throat> Mark records in the same verse that in addition to the hand-washing, the Pharisees require a ceremonial washing of cups and pots and bronze vessels and other things. This is because in the Torah, if a cup or a pot had something unclean in it, and if the cup or a pot was porous, clay, which was the most common type of material used for cups and pots, and thus it would have absorbed some of the contents, it had to be destroyed. Bronze vessels, on the other hand, weren't porous. So something unclean in them would not be absorbed, and thus with a, just a quick washing out, it could be used again. But the Pharisees had twisted this command of God, such that if a proper ritual washing, as defined and sanctioned by them, was not done for any object, then the uncleanness would not be cured. Tradition trumps Scripture. Yeshua goes one step further. He brings up another tradition that apparently really bothered him. Man, he was bugged by this. As an example of just how perverted the Jewish law had become, such that it just blatantly broke one of the most fundamental of all laws of God, as found in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. Jesus reminds these synagogue leaders that the penalty that God prescribes in the Torah for refusing to honor your mother and father is death. However, it had become a practice, loophole really, that in order to look good and to get favor with the temple authorities, probably accompanied with a false belief that the more you gave to the temple, the more you were in good stead with God, whatever was needed to care for one's parents could instead be redirected, given as korban, an offering to the temple, thus leaving one's parents in a bad way. I mean, there was no pensions or 401ks in that era. 
Yeshua says that to honor this terrible tradition is to make God's law to honor one's parents null and void, to abolish it. Folks, as much as we want to, we simply can't have it both ways. We can either obey God's laws or we can obey the traditions of men, especially when performing a tradition of men uh, contradicts rather a law of God. Let me just give you a few examples pertinent to the modern Christian church. Jesus told us in His Sermon on the Mount that He not only has not abolished the Torah, but that anyone who intentionally disobeys and teaches against the Torah will be given the status of least in the Kingdom of Heaven. What does the church say? church says, nonsense. Regardless of what Jesus, what He said, Jesus did abolish the Torah. And that to, do, to obey it is sin. And it is a serious offense to the institution of the church, such that you will likely get kicked out. A lot of us know that. Both Old and New Testaments, including Revelation, rail against homosexuality as an abomination to God saying unequivocally that those who would practice it will be barred from the Kingdom of Heaven, and it makes marriage strictly a union between a man and a woman, what does much of the modern church say? They say that since Jesus is love, this abolishes such laws that were instituted by His harsh and severe Father. Gay people should be accepted as they are, with no intent to help them towards repentance, because their lifestyle is no longer considered wrong. And further, marriage can be anything we say it is, including between couples of the same sex, as long as they love each other. God ordains in His Word that those who worship Him are to celebrate the biblical feasts in perpetuity. church says no to this. It's much too Jewish. And instead created a number of non-biblical Gentile traditions and celebrations that demands allegiance to them as the truest validation of our Christianity. Among these are Easter and Christmas that were from the beginning created by men, Gentile men, as anti-Jewish, heathen-appeasing celebrations that adopted a number of pagan elements in them. God says, keep the Sabbath on the seventh day. The church says the Sabbath is dead and gone. So now we celebrate something new called the Lord's Day. And that for those that want a Sabbath, well, any day we choose is fine with God. I probably offended sufficiently, so I'll move on. <clears throat> Just please consider that what I told you is the biblical truth, backed up by Scripture, in context, even if it's uncomfortable to hear. And it is in the same vein 
is what Yeshua has just told those scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites, Yeshua says to them. Then he again invokes the prophet Isaiah to further admonish. Now what we read in verses 8 and 9 most approximates the Septuagint, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament. However, in the Hebrew Old Testament, it reads like this, Matthew, uh, rather Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14. Then Adonai said, Because these people approach me with empty words, and the honor they bestow on me is mere lip service, while in fact they have distanced their hearts from me, and their fear of me is just a mitzvah, um, an ordinance, of human origin, therefore I will have to keep shocking these people with astounding and amazing things until the wisdom of their wise ones vanishes, and the discernment of their discerning ones is hidden away." Clearly what Yeshua is saying by invoking the words of Isaiah is that even though the scribes and the Pharisees claim they are worshiping and glorifying God by creating mounds of man-made rules. In fact, it has no efficacy. It has no effect. It's worthless. It's beyond worthless. It's offensive to God. This is because whatever intent they have towards God, well, it's wrong-minded. It's shallow. It's insincere. It's not acceptable to him. The laws, the mitzvot, they follow to demonstrate their fear of God. They're alien to him. They're not of heavenly origin, but rather they come from human minds. So, the ones that claim discernment and wisdom, the religious leaders, they will eventually be proven as offering nothing of value, and their doctrines will evaporate as surely as steam does after it rises for a couple of seconds from a boiling pot. In verse 10, Yeshua shifts His attention to the crowd now, the crowd that is witnessing all of this. He's no longer addressing the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He's talking around them so that they can understand what has just transpired. And what he says, man, it's a direct frontal attack on everything they hold dear. I mean, just, just picture this astonished crowd and a shocked group of disciples. He begins with, listen up and get this through your heads. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And he goes on to say, what makes a person unclean is not what goes into his mouth, it's what comes out of his mouth. That's what makes him unclean. Aha, says the Christian church. Jesus has just abolished kosher eating. You remember what I told you several minutes ago. None of this passage is about Holy Scripture. None of it's about kosher eating. It's not even about food, per se. What's this entire debate about? Purity regulations. 
ritual, ceremonial hand-washing before eating, as required by a tradition. So, what Yeshua was saying to the crowd upholds the Torah. And it's told to them in a form of a, a wisdom saying, or maybe something you could call a proverb. See, there is no requirement from the law of Moses to ritually wash hands before eating in order to satisfy the biblical purity laws. That the hands of a Jew touches something that has been in contact with a Gentile doesn't affect the purity, the cleanliness of a food a Jew may eat at a later time. But no! say most Christian Bible commentators. Jesus changed the entire subject when He turned to talk to the crowds. As we say in America, He changed horses in midstream. He abruptly stopped talking about ritual hand washing and inexplicably turned to the crowd so that He could abolish God's food laws. This is why I spoke earlier about thinking of this section as if it were in brackets or in a bubble, so that you're not distracted or deceived by man-made church doctrines. The section begins with the question of ritual hand-washing in verse 2, and it ends with the final words Jesus says to the crowd in verse 20 concerning the same subject. These are what really makes a person unclean, but eating without doing does not make a person unclean. And the things that Jesus is referring to when He says, these are what really makes a person unclean, we have a list of sins that we find in verse 19 as biblically defined violations of the Law of Moses. In verse 13, <clears throat> these horrified disciples turn to their master and they ask him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? I mean, this was kind of a, a knee jerk, really an admonishment to Yeshua. I mean, Christ's words had been strong, unequivocal, said with full intent of trashing the Jewish law about ritual hand-washing and, for that matter, all Jewish law, traditions of the elders, that were man-made. They ran counter to the Torah, which is why in his argument he used as an example another sinful tradition of the Pharisees about using money to support elderly parents, instead giving it to the temple. You know, if a pastor said those severe words, and his deacons or elders told him that he had offended the, the higher-ups and others in his religion, apologies would have been immediately forthcoming, because within modern Christianity, we can't ever hold so strongly to the biblical truth and forthrightly utter it in defense of God's written Word if it might upset people. especially those in leadership along with us or above us. Where did we ever get this false notion? Where? 
When did we turn into spiritual cowards? Certainly we don't get this from Yeshua's examples. His insistence on God's biblical truth as against man-made doctrines, this is what led him to the cruel cross. It was his constant refusals to bow down to deceived and wrong-minded Jewish religious leaders to not go with the flow of wrong-minded traditions that caused both the temple and the synagogue leadership to gang up on him and insist that the Roman government arrest him and execute him. So in verse 13, in reply to his startled and very worried disciples, he says, every plant my Father in heaven has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Remember, back in chapter 13, Yeshua had spoken a series of parables to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the parables of the tares, the weeds, He said that His disciples should not, generally speaking, pull out the roots of a weed plant among the congregation. A weed, a tare, was representative of seed that Satan had planted, members of Satan's kingdom. Rather, it was God that would pull them out at the proper time. Well, God on earth, Christ, says that these particular Pharisees and scribes that came to accuse Him and His followers of not obeying the traditions of the elders are representative of the seeds not planted by His Father. The only other planter of spiritual seeds is the devil. It's either the Father or it's the devil. So Yeshua is saying bluntly, but in connection to His parables, that this delegation from Jerusalem are plants that have grown from Satan's seed. And following His own wisdom that He gave in the parable of the tares, in verse 14 He says, let them be. Let them be. They are blind guides. And when a blind guide guides another blind man, both of them will fall in the pit. That is, he doesn't intend to do anything against these Pharisees and scribes. He's not going to march against them. He's not going to incite people against them. He's not going to try to have them removed from their positions of authority and power. Rather, in time, God Himself will handle it. And that time will probably be at the end of the age, the final harvest. Yeshua calls these religious authorities blind guides. What's a guide? A person who leads, a person who shows the way, they instruct. A blind, a guide who is blind walks in random directions, will, will of course eventually walk into a pit since he's unable to see where he's actually going. Problem is, what happens when others follow this blind guide? See, there is a, a secular parable or proverb <clears throat> that is used in nearly every language that refers to boneheaded, 
wrong-minded leaders as the blind leading the blind. That is, a blind person looks to another blind person to lead them. Pretty foolish thing to do. The problem becomes acute when the blind person has no idea he's blind. Doesn't realize that the person he has hired to lead him is even more blind. Yeah, I could probably spend the next several minutes calling out certain leaders of our faith, both Jewish and Gentile, leaders of both Judaism and Christianity. But as Jesus says in verse 15, after the astonished and now pretty unsettled disciples ask him to explain what he just said, he says to them, don't you even under don't you understand even now? You still don't get it? I want you to please hear me. If truly you cannot look at the congregation to which you belong and the leadership that lead it, the leadership you look to for truth, and are still unable to discern whether those leaders are enlightened by God's illumination or are guided by blind guides, the darkness of man-made thoughts and beliefs, there's nothing more I can say to help you. I can only imagine the exasperated tone of Yeshua's words to those men who he personally, privately, took under his divine wing and taught his very own disciples. Don't you understand even now? But out of his limitless mercy and compassion, he explained to them using another metaphor, yet another one, and a sort of a parable, to try to get to see, get them to see the wrongness of this lens through which they still viewed and judged the veracity of their Jewish religious leadership and the rules and regulations, all of them man-made, to which they still adhered. We'll begin next time with his explanation of all this.